בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוך השם, always good to be in heaven Torah. In the uh, chaotic world we live in, things are picking up. Um, as obviously everyone knows, uh, you don't have to really watch the news to know the news. In today's world, it's, uh, every five seconds there's some type of bing or bunk or punk or something in your phone that's telling you something's happening somewhere. You know, uh, Putin wants to attack this one, Trump wants to kill that one, you know, all types of craziness happening around the world. Now, Shemachem, there was a terrorist attack in New York, uh, just uh, literally maybe uh, a few minutes away from where I used to live uh, for uh, almost 15 years, and... Um, So a lot of Balagan, there's a lot of craziness happening around the world. And uh, like I said before we started, I'm not sure if it was um, in a shiur that I said it or in a private conversation. You know, nowadays, you, just, you lose the track of time. You don't know when you're talking, when you're not talking. I'm not sure if it's a dream or if it's reality. You start losing yourself <laughs> at some point. Um, but... Uh, It was a while ago, maybe a year ago or so, I said to someone that um, all the, uh, unfortunately, all the uh, balagan that was happening in Israel at the time that the world wasn't really paying much attention to and uh, always calling something that it wasn't uh, when the terrorists, the, uh, these Arab terrorists uh, would uh, take their cars, their trucks, their tractors, whatever they could uh, find and uh, kill as many people as they can or stab uh, Jews all over in the middle of the streets. And uh, Ami Israel would scream out to the world that terrorism is happening in their own backyard. And everyone would say, no, it's not terrorism. He's a victim. He's a this. He's a that. And even got to the point where their own soldiers, the own Israeli soldiers were prosecuted and sent to jail for fighting terrorism. There's actually one guy now that's uh, Hashem Elchem. He's sitting in jail as we speak. Uh, he's sitting in jail right now for defending the people against terrorism. Uh, I wonder if the same is going to happen in America. Because right now, terrorism has arrived in America. It already arrived a few months ago, but they've been denying it. Uh, for months now, they always call it something else. No, this is a lone attack. This is just one crazy guy. This is just one single individual uh, event. It just happens to be a coincidence that he's using a car to kill a bunch of people. It just happens to be a coincidence that he says, Allah Akbar. It just happens to be a coincidence that he sent a few emails to ISIS. It just happens to be a coincidence to... Shtuyot, nonsense, garbage. Well, now, for the first time in my... I mean, I don't watch the news. I don't uh, read much of it. But today I got 500 bings in my phone from every alert that could possibly be that something happened. So I looked into it. And I regretted that I looked into it. Because once you see one, you see all the other garbage that's happening in the world. So first, I see that uh, the mayor of New York admitted, or said, at least publicly, we'll see if he retracts the statement by tomorrow, 
But at least for now, he says this was a terrorist attack. This was an act of terrorism. So these politicians are very careful with their words. So we'll see. We have about 24 hours to retract the statement. If he doesn't retract it within 24 hours, then they actually have to admit that terrorism has arrived in America. Uh, and we're not talking about September 11th. Uh, so uh, after that, you see this, the other garbage, unfortunately. And right under it, you see that this famous actor, uh, Kevin Spacey, has admitted to pretty much being a pedophile. And also decided that after the, the, the other fellow actor that he molested 30 years ago uh, came out in public, uh, Kevin Spacey says, I don't remember. I don't remember what happened 30 years ago, but if I did it, I'm sorry. Oh, and by the way, I'm a homosexual. He decided that this is the day he's going to announce something he's been hiding for three decades or four decades, however long he's been in the public limelight. Mamash, like, the world revolves around me. The fact that I destroyed somebody's life is irrelevant and completely Sodom and Gomorrah. And then if that's not enough, if that's not enough, you see that this is tied to other things. And then you see some other actor, this Corey uh, Spelling, I think, or somebody, Corey Spelling? Feldman. Feldman, Feldman. Corey Feldman, some other actor has been screaming, uh, you know, uh, that he's been uh, molested for many years, and now he's looking to do a charitable event. He's looking for donations, donations of $10 million, nothing more, nothing less, $10 million, so he can make a movie and uh, tell the world who molested him and a bunch of other people and thousands of people because this is going to save millions of kids. The fact that it's going to make him millions is irrelevant. Is irrelevant. It's not. He says at the end of the recording, because you know, once you're in this thing, you want to see Sodom and Gomorrah, you, you want to see what the whole story is. So at the end of his six minutes waste of life of mine that I had today, my master, this, I, may, I may actually have to spend six minutes in Gainum for, for spending six minutes looking at this stuff. At the end of the six minutes, he says, this can save millions of children. Mama, she thought that he was on a script. This can save Millions of children. We don't want the children to suffer. I'm like, this guy for real. And the best part, this is a war for God. That's, that's why I said, okay, I said, okay, but Hashem, maybe I'm not going to go to Gain. No, maybe this is something I have to mention in the lecture. Why? You throw, God, you throw, you throw God's name anywhere, I got to get involved. Now he's fighting for God. All of a sudden became Moshe Rabbeinu, Pinchas. Became Pinchas. Became Pinchas. He's fighting for God now. But he needs $10 million in donations to make a movie. He can't just say, by the way, so-and-so raped me. So-and-so raped this guy. You just, just, just put it on Twitter like you do a million other tweets. Why do you have to wait? Oh, if they're going to sue me. So use a public defender if you can't afford it. What do you care if it's true? If you really care about the kids. You care about the kids. Because you care about the kids that are being raped right now. So it made me this. I learned some Musar from this. You know, Baruch Hashem, he tried to learn Musar from everything. And I have to tell you guys, really, I have to tell you, I think, I mean, spending, spending, unfortunately, most of my life in the secular world, I saw a lot of this Sodom and Gomorrah already many years ago. I've always hated it. I've always been disgusted by it. 
always doesn't, you know, it's not, it's never been something that uh, I've admired. Uh, I've always found the whole Hollywood world filthy and disgusting. Uh, when I used to play uh, poker in my sinful days with uh, high stakes poker players, some of these people were celebrities uh, that you see on TV. Uh, and I've always told people that are interested still, unfortunately, in poker, they're like, oh, don't you miss the poker days? No, I don't. And the reason why is because once you actually play with these people, you get to meet them. You know, you sit there for hours. Poker is one of those games you sit there for hours and hours for days if you want. And these people, these sharks, will sit there for days with you, waiting for you to be tired so they can pretty much beat you for everything you have. It's almost, It's professional. And um, long story short, every single person, without a uh, exaggeration, every single person I've ever met that's on TV, that's a high-stakes poker player, is a complete loser in real life. Is a complete degenerate loser in life. I'm not talking about like loser in poker. He may be a great poker player. He may be a great gambler. But in actual real life, the biggest losers in the world. Biggest. Like nothing more, nothing less. Just mamash. Like degenerates of degenerates. They win these huge you know, poker tournaments and they literally in many cases lose them in hours. All of it in hours because they go play blackjack. They go drugs, prostitutions. Why do I mention this? Why do I mention this? I have a little experience, so... Someone has some experience in the, this Tov Avo world that people still ask me about if I miss it. You have money, you have a lot of opportunities to do a lot of shtuyot. And I always tell them no. Number one, I didn't like it when I was in it. But number two, even more so, once you get out, you see how filthy that world is, even more so, especially when you get involved with Torah. And I can tell you that from my experience... Living the high life, uh, seeing as much as I've seen from people that have worked for me, people that I've met, people that I've known, and so on and so forth. Um, I think it's without, without a doubt, if you're not living a Torah life, if you're not living mamash, like, and I'm not talking about like you just go to Beknesset once a week. I'm not even talking about going to Beknesset once a day. I'm not even talking about talking about. I'm not talking about you keep kosher in the house, sometimes outside when it's convenient. Talk about if you're not living mamash a Torah life, like God said it, you do it. No questions asked, no complaints about the bedin, the rabbis, the keilah, or they don't like me, or they do like me, or why does he do this? Why is everyone a sinner? Why do I have to do it if they're not? Forget about all that stuff. Stop being a victim. If you stop yourself for a second and you, you, you think about this, if you're not living a Torah life, like I'm talking about 100% Avraham Avinu, lech lecha, leave everything, get out of yourself that you're in right now and get to a point of, that's it. I'm taking everything I know on. Hashem said it, I'm doing it. I don't understand it, doesn't matter. I don't like it, doesn't matter. Be a paraduma. Paraduma, no one knows why. No one knows why we have this law. Shlomo Melech, the, the wisest man that ever lived, 
that the sages say had mamash the chokhmah that's below, right below God. Something that's it's impossible for us to understand how smart he was. We're not talking about to be like him. We're talking about to understand how smart he was. We can't. We don't have the ability. Forget about understanding God. That's a different story. We'll actually lecture for tomorrow. That's Mishnah for tomorrow. Understanding God. But I'm talking about today. I'm talking about understanding Shlomo Melech. We can't. He himself says in Kohelet, in Ecclesiastes, Paraduma, It's far from me. I don't know. I have no idea. This one, I have no idea why we do it. Mitzvot I know, Chazal I know, Moshe Rabbeinu I know, David Melech, my father, everything I know. Paraduma, it's far from me. What's far from me? Far from me means it's the distance between knowledge and no knowledge is significant. If you have some type of knowledge, if some type of knowledge, but it's not like a hundred percent, you say, "Yeah, I know a little bit about it. I know a little bit about it. I don't know the I don't know the answer. I don't know why, who, when, and what who the players are." But I know a little bit about it. I can hold a conversation. But you say something is far from me, you're pretty much saying that the distance is between knowledge and nothing. And you're claiming to know nothing. Shlomo Melech is claiming to know nothing about Paraduma. He says, I have n- it's far from me. No clue. There's many Talmim I can give you that are, you know, tastes, that are different commentaries about Paraduma. You can say about it, it symbolizes this, it symbolizes that, it represents this, it represents that, it does this. There's many things you can say, but bottom line, tachlis, why? How it works? Why? We even have this. Why do we care? Why does it have to be so red? So what if there's two hairs that are black? Big deal. Paint them in red. Oh, but Paint them in red. Why do you have to make such a big deal? It's only two hairs. You know how many hairs a paraduma has? Let me bring you a shiduch right now. Bring a shiduch. Little yeshiva boy wants a shiduch. Bring a shiduch. She's rich. She's pretty. She's nice. She's everything. IQ 190. She's your age. She's below. Whatever you want. Everything else. You say, no, no, but she has two gray hairs. Two gray hairs. Take a little. Pluck it out. Big deal. Take him out. Or better yet, you don't have to pluck him out. Why are you going to ruin the hair? Maybe you're going to notice the two missing hairs. You're going to sue her. So take uh, some dye diet. What's the big deal? Shlomo Melech says, I don't know. No clue. No clue. In today's world, we are living this parasha. By the way, anyone who doesn't want me to melt before the end of the shiur would do me a big chesed and turn on the air conditioner. But if you just want to enjoy me sweating and melting by the end of the shiur, turn into an ice cream, that's fine too. The guys and uh, the people on Facebook will have a new chidush to see. Rabbi melts on Facebook live. <laughs> Maybe it's because he talked about the paraduma. So, in today's world, from my experience, seeing what you can do with money, 
what you can do with connections, what you could do with popularity, and so on and so forth. Um, I've hated it then, I hate it now even more so, because it's, there's nothing good comes out of it. But people still chase it. People, for some reason, are convinced they will do better. If they were given the opportunity to have a lot of money, to have fame and fortune, to have the popularity, to have whatever, the power, they will do better than all those that failed before them. Despite the fact that every single day there's another horror story of someone that won the lotto and ruined their life, or someone that uh, you know got a $100 million contract and went broke because of it, and somehow ruined his life alongside it, and someone that made it and lost it. And you constantly have these stories. It's almost like old news when you hear, it's like, ah, another one. Eh. It's, like, eh. it's like another one. Well, big deal. Another basketball player declares bankruptcy. Big deal. Who cares? Another NFL star spent $100 million on cars he's leasing. He doesn't even own them. Another idiot spends $200 million helping his friends out on scams. Another moron goes to jail for fighting dogs, even though he gets $100 million just to throw a piece of leather. And you have these people ruining their lives every day with the money that Hashem gives them. And somehow we are all convinced, I will do different. If I get this money, I will do different. I will be a big tzaddik, I'll build yeshivot, I'll build a business, I'll be a Baal Chesed. No one will be homeless. No one will be homeless ever again. Everyone thinks they'll do better. I'm telling you from experience, if you never listened to anything I ever said before, you should listen to this. You should listen to the other things too. I think there's a little chukma in some of them. I think without a doubt that if you're not living a life today that's mamash at least trying at least trying to be Avram Avinu you can't be Avram Avinu there's only one of a kind but I'm talking about not being Avram Avinu like you're going to go put your kid in as a korban for Hashem or anything but I'm talking about Lech Lecha I'm talking about Hashem says go why? it doesn't make a difference it doesn't make a difference why Hashem said keep Shabbat doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference why Hashem you have to be modest. Doesn't make a difference. Doesn't make a difference. Doesn't make a difference why you have to eat kosher, even though it's 50% more expensive. It doesn't make a difference that the rabbis charge so much money for yeshivot and you still have to send your kids there. It doesn't make a difference whether you understand it or you don't understand it. It doesn't make a difference if you agree with it or not. It doesn't make a difference. I believe without a certainty, without without a doubt. That if you're not living a life of Torah, mamash Torah like 100%, you are mamash putting your life and anyone involved in your life in danger. Right now, you're in danger. You are a walking time bomb. If you're not saying, God said it, I'm doing it. If I don't know he did, he said it, but how can I do it? Hopefully I do by accident. But in reality, if, if you're still debating whether I'm going to go or not, whether I'm going to go with Hashem 
or still stay like somewhat secular and wear tight pants and still go chase money instead of chasing Torah, still go try to be the celebrity with a big watch that, you know, is enough for three people to have on one arm. You know, these guys wear these giant watches. It's a clock. Just put the clock on your hand and that's it. Why do you have such a big watch? Were you blind? If you're blind, no one's going to ask you to time anyway. Just have a stick. At least give him a shot. Give him a little hand. Tell him you're blind. Why such a big watch? Awful, awful clothing that people have today. Mamash, no sense of decency left in the world. No sense of decency left in the world. Not for men, not for women, nothing. Not for religious, not for not religious. If you're not 100% on board with Hashem, you are mamash a walking time bomb. And this, I'm not telling you this as a rabbi. I'm not telling you this as uh, some type of ultra tzaddik, I know it. I'm telling you as someone like you. I'm telling you that mamash, the greatest thing, the greatest chesed that Hashem has ever done for me was force me to do tshuva. The greatest thing was put me through hell so I could finally be forced to wake up and see, ah, it's you. Okay, okay, I got you. I got you. Okay, it took me a while. I know you beat me up. I know you pretty much destroyed my life or what I thought was a life, but thank you. Thank you for making me really, really sick, like I pretty much was dying. Thank me for, for giving me pain that's pretty much permanent. I still have some of it till this day. Even though I'm 99% better, that 1% is probably more pain than everybody in the room put together. I still have to deal with it every day. But Baruch Hashem, this is great. I can still speak in front of you. You don't even know what happens. All of that, millions of dollars that I thought I had, all that stuff, all garbage. Garbage. Mamash, toilet paper is worth more. And people are still chasing it. People still ask me, oh, don't you miss it? Don't you want to go back to, why don't you go make $50 million and then do Kiruv again? The reality of it is that if you have your mind anywhere other than being davuk be'ashem, amash glued to Hashem, you're a walking time bomb. You're putting your life at risk. Because everywhere you look, is Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's this week's parasha. This week's parasha, parashat Vayera, <clears throat> we continue to see the extraordinary life of Avraham Avinu. The extraordinary life of Avraham Avinu. Last week we finished the parasha where Avraham Avinu did something that most people would not do. I say most because I actually met a couple of people that actually did it. And he circumcised himself as an adult. You know, one of the most motivating things that I've had the pleasure of meeting were righteous converts. And the reason is because many times the righteous converts are males that have not had their brit milah, have not had circumcision. And 
to ask a eight-day-old baby if they want to have a Brit Milah is not really such a big deal. But if you tell a 30, 40, or 50-year-old, hey, by the way, I'm going to cut a piece of you out and it's in the most sensitive part of your body, when are you coming in? Um, usually, I'm telling you, for me, if somebody told me that, I'd say, oh, by the way, I'm not going to convert. But I like you guys. I'll read the book. I wouldn't do it. I'm telling you honestly, right now, I'm telling you honestly, I wouldn't do it. Me, personally, I wouldn't do it. I also have a little bit of a bias because I have hypersensitivity, so one of the benefits that Hashem left me with out of the whole chaos that I had for seven years is that now I went from you know playing football as a kid, so I was able to endure a lot of pain, Now I have hypersensitivity, meaning I feel everything five times more. So me, even thinking about pain, is, 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 is a, it's terror for me. It's like a nightmare. So for me, thinking about somebody, an adult, taking a brit milah, has circumcision, I'm doing, I'm doing tachanun already for him. You out of your mind? But mamash, I actually met a few people that did it. But I'm not talking about did it, like they went to a surgery, anesthesia. I'm talking about I met a guy, Tzadik. He said he didn't have the money to go get a surgery, but he was so motivated by what he read about Avram Avinu in Parashat Lech Lecha that he says, this is what God wants? Okay, I'm going to do it. And he gave himself a circumcision. He gave himself a circumcision. I, I mean, I met him in person. Like, I live next to him. I, I mean, I said, I don't know if there's another person in the generation like you, but I actually happened to meet other people like him. There are other people like him that are willing to do it. Obviously, most of them are a little more normal. They go to a hospital. But the point is that I don't care if it's in a hospital. I don't care if it's... To me, it's just... I, I just wouldn't do it. The fact that there are people out there that are willing to do it for Hashem is a kitrug on all of us. It's a case... It's a prosecution against all of us. Why? Gemara says, the geret tzedek, the, the righteous converts, are like a skin disease for the Jewish people. Why like a skin disease? There are several explanations. One explanation is they show us how righteous we're supposed to be. Because they're so righteous. So we look bad in front of Hashem, look at these people. They don't even have to do it. And they're doing it. Looks bad for Hashem. Looks bad. So I met some of these people. And it's amazing. It's amazing. I love converts. If people actually see some of these converts and what they're willing to do, what they're willing to endure, in order to serve Hashem, it's um, it's a shame that natural-born Jews don't feel as passionate sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. Because today, from my perspective, and I think no one can really disagree with this, if you don't have a direction from the one above, there's only one other direction. And it's Sodom and Gomorrah. 
all the things we aspire to be are proven in front of our eyes to be bad. The Rambam says that all of your desires, all of your natural desires are bad for you. You want more money? It's bad for you. Look at all of these people that turn into the biggest losers in the world as a result of having a lot of money. Before they had money, they were perfectly decent people. Had multiple jobs, had good kids, had decent marriages, worked hard, prayed to God. You give them a bunch of money, they forgot him. They forgot the hand that feeds them. If you actually think about that, forgetting the hand that feeds you, it's the most preposterous thought that could ever be. We do it every day. He gives it to us and we're questioning why we have to listen to him. Can you see? Yes, that's because of him. Can you breathe? Yes, that's because of him. Do you have money in your pocket? Yes, that's because of him. Are you alive? Yes, that's because of him. Your kids are good? Yes, that's because of him. Do I still have to keep Shabbat? Well, that, that's from him. So, if you're living a life where you're still questioning whether you should listen to him or not, you're putting yourself in serious danger. Because Hashem is closing the store. Rav Nisim Yagen, Allah Shalom, has uh, multiple lectures that he talks about the end of days, multiple lectures talking about everything else, obviously, also. But I remember vividly one of these videos that Bechagve uh, Sela, it's a cube uh, organization in Israel that makes extraordinary movies. Like the Torah movies, like we have, they're like the pillars of it. They're like the psh, amazing, they're like the Sony of making Torah movies. Amazing. Like, Ramash, every single movie they make is, it should be a blockbuster. And there's one particular one that uh, that they made with Rav Nisim again in the background. It's about the end of days. It's maybe about 10, 11-minute clip. I must have watched it 50 times. It's the same thing. I actually heard the real lecture. But the movie, the way it's presented, the way, it, I mean, it just, it makes you, because seeing is different than hearing. Chazal also teaches this, that uh, Hashem could have taught all of the mitzvot to Moshe Rabbeinu by purely just putting a little disc in his head, say, okay, now you know, like that movie, The uh, Matrix. The guy now knows how to fight karate. But he actually says, the mitzvot that I showed you in the mountain, I showed them to you. What do you mean I showed them to you? I showed you how to do them. Hashem showed them how to do tefillin. He showed them how to do everything. Because seeing takes everything to a different level. This is why there's a lot more siyat dishmaya to the learning you do when you come to the lecture than when you just hear it on one of these applications or on a CD. There's a lot more siyat dishmaya for the people that attend the lecture, for the people that are watching it live, um, because you're a part of it. And part of the special merit that each and every single one of you have gives the speaker words to say that are relevant to you. So, I remember in this in this shiur, he says 
things that I've read, things that I've, it's not, no, no, like, uh, no, like, in, you know, Hidushim, I mean, it's just, just, just the way he speaks is extraordinary, uh, but it's things that are in the books, things in the Zechariah, Zechariah, Ezekiel, um, you know, all the prophets, there's nothing like, uh, that you've never heard of before in many of these lectures, if you've heard these lectures, the Rambam, and so on and so forth. But he talks about he talks about the the end of days, how things are going to happen, and um, it's happening. He was already talking about it almost twenty years ago. It's happening. I've been talking about it for a few years, but even more so, it's happening now because things are being fast forwarded, and it's getting to a point where it's obvious we're running out of time. So one of the examples that Rav Nisimi again says, he says, you know, in Israel there's this, uh, I'm not sure how it is, and I know in America they don't do such a thing, but in different countries I'm sure there's such a thing, where you go to the local deli, they call it Makolet, in Israel, and if you don't have any money, uh, then you tell the guy, listen, just put it on my tab. You know, whatever you want, buy milk, you have cookies, this, that, whatever you got to buy, put it on my tab. In Israel, it's a very, you know, it's a family. It's one big family, even though it's, you know, millions of people, and some of them want to kill each other, we're still a family. And you just put it on the tab, and eventually you pay it. Eventually, the guy says, listen, you have to pay off your tab. If you didn't pay the tab, you build a big tab. But the point is, they're very, very trusting people. In America, you do say, put it on my tab, he says... No shoes, no uh, shirt, no service. No tabs. No tabs at a deli or anything. So anyway, he says, everybody has a tab. Everybody has a tab with the guy at the Makolet, the guy at the deli. He says, but what happens when the guy decides that he's going to close the deli? Happens once in a while, once every few decades. They close the deli. So now he calls everybody that's in the notebook. He says, Aye, Yaakov, okay, the uh, 5,000 shekels, I need them this week. What this week? I think I'm going to call up 5,000 shekels. I don't have 5,000 shekels. You have to have 5,000 shekels. I need the 5,000 shekels. Why do you need it now? I'm closing the store. I, I know I owed you the 5,000. I know it's true. I'm not saying you're lying about the 5,000 shekels. I know. I owe you 5,000. I know. I don't have it. It doesn't matter you don't have it. You have to pay it now. You have to find it. I'm closing the store. There's no next week. There's no second opportunity. This is the agreement we had. Rav Nisim again, Allah Shalom is saying, Rabotai, Hashem is closing the store. It's not going to be a second chance. <coughs> Whether you like it or not, He's going to show you the truth. Whether you like it or not, he's fast-forwarding everything right before he closes the store. Everything must go. You ever see those signs on stores in New York? Everything must go. Going out of business sale. Some people actually go out of business for 25 years. 25 years going out of business. But here's not a joke. 
Hashem is fast-forwarding everything and He's showing you it's time to make a choice. This is also one of the prophecies. Chazal says that the Mashiach is not going to come unless the generation of fully righteous people or fully wicked people. Chazal, already almost 2,000 years ago, says this does not make sense. It's impossible. These are people that were able to revive the dead. He said, we're able to revive the dead, but we know there's always going to be somebody that's a rasha. There's always going to be wicked people. There's no way there's going to be a whole generation of righteous people. No way. There's always going to be one, two, three, four, five million rotten apples. There's always going to be. And there's no such thing as a whole generation of Hamans. That's Dora The world won't survive. Hashem says he's not going to let it happen. This doesn't make any sense. What, what does it mean? So Chazal explained it to say, at the end of days, it's not that Hashem is saying everyone has to be righteous, or else the Mashiach is not going to come, or everyone is, has to be wicked, and the Mashiach is going to come. No, no, no. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai explains it in the Zohar that in the time of Mashiach, by then you're going to have to make a choice. You're either going to be fully righteous and going with Hashem, like Avraham Avinu, Lech Lecha. Why? Doesn't make a difference. I said so. Why keep Shabbat? Doesn't make a difference. No more explanations, no more proofs. No more I believe, I don't believe. Go. Why? I said so. Fully righteous. Tamim Tiei Mashem. Noach. No more. Is this, is this skirt long enough? No more questions. You ran out of time. You had time to question. Is this wig allowed? No. But did you see it? It doesn't make a difference. It's not allowed. But the Rebbe said it. No, he didn't. He said something else allowed. It looked like straw. Not that it looks like uh, one of these uh, Victoria's Secret uh, models. You have a Shemachem, people that call themselves Rabbaniyot, giving lectures online. They look like they just came out of a magazine. You're not allowed to watch the lectures if you're a man. Honestly, I don't think you should watch it as a, as a woman. As a man, you're not allowed to look, even though it's a headshot. It's only the face. I'm not talking about the whole body, forget about it. Shemachem, no one knows how to dress modest in this generation anymore. Talk about just the head, you can't look at it. She has hair from here, it reaches the floor. She has better hair than the, the runway models. The runway is like, wow, look at these Jewish women, Rabbaniot. I want to be a Rabbanit. I want to be a Rabbanit. Look at our hair, it's so pretty. It's always made, even when she just wakes up. Yeah, it's not real. It's real, but it's not real. That's why it's always made. You're not allowed to look at it. Sometimes people send me these uh, videos. What do you think about what she said? As soon as I press play, I press stop. I can't look at it. I'm sorry, don't send me such things. Why? She's a woman. She's a, she's a rabbinite. I said, I don't know what she is. I can't look at her. Send me a voice. Send me a sound. Send me a text. Don't send me a picture. Someone asked me about a week, two weeks ago. What's my opinion? about women that give, make videos or put pictures online. 
and I've been trying to write the article, and I started it, almost finished it, and then obviously something took my attention away, and I haven't answered it yet. Because, you know, you want to answer one thing, but then it's, you start thinking about other things, and it's like, ah, oh, this, this also should be in it. We should also talk about this. We should talk about this. You try to make something good. But something good takes time. And uh, in so many words, this is the answer. If you're asking yourself as a woman that's trying to do the will of Hashem, that's trying to live a righteous life, both Jew or Gentile, this applies to you. If you're trying to do the will of Hashem and you understand that modesty is the number one mitzvah for women, in the eyes of Hashem, this is what we learn about Sarai Menu this week in Parashat Vayera. When the angels come to Avraham Avinu, they're angels. It's not a, it's not a uh, big deal for them to know where Sarai Menu is. They're angels. They know what he had for lunch 30 years ago. They're angels. But they say to Avraham, Avraham, where's your wife, Sarah? Me, if I was, if I was Avraham, I'd say, how do you know my wife's name? How do you know her name? Were you guys on a WhatsApp group? You guys on a Facebook group together? How do you know her name? How do you know her name? That's what I would ask, but Avram didn't ask this. He says she's in a tent. So Rashi says, why does it, why is this written? What's, what's the significance of this verse? What's the significance of this verse? The significance of this verse is that Hashem is trying to remind us of Sarai Menu's modesty. Why does her being in a tent represent modesty? Why does it represent modesty? Because in last week's parasha, parashat Lech Lecha, we are reminded twice, twice in last week's parasha, of how beautiful Saraimen was. Twice in last week's parasha, Hashem reminds us, tells us, that He created Saraimenu with extraordinary beauty. He says it was beautiful, me'od. Not just be beautiful, it's just one word. But when it says me'od, it says this is something special. How special? Chazal says that the most beautiful person that can live on earth right now looks more like a monkey. The most beautiful person, whatever the most beautiful person looks like. They're shiny, I don't know what they are. They have diamonds coming out of their eyes. Their hair is gold. Whatever you think is beautiful... That looks like a monkey next to Sarai Menu. Why is that so important for us to know? Because beautiful people tend to be immodest. Beautiful people tend to want the world to know, hey, I'm beautiful. Ugly people, usually, before we lost shame, like we do in this generation, before this generation, ugly people used to hide like caves. Today, they take off their clothes. They think that makes them beautiful. So here we learn from Sarai Menu, despite her beauty, she was not hanging out with the guys. Not hanging out with the guys. She's in a tent. Why? 
That's not my place to be. I'm not, my place is not to be with the men. My place is to be a righteous woman with other women. We're not going to have a drink together and socialize. That's not what we do. Not that you're not allowed to talk if your husband is next to you. But the point is, is that these women that are very friendly with many men need to learn from Sarai Menu. You're too friendly. So this leads us back to the question. If you are trying to decide, should I put or should I leave my pictures on Facebook, on all the social media or not? The answer is no. You should take them all off. All of them. You should not have any pictures of anything. Not your face, not your body, not your nothing. Number one, because it's Ainara. Number one. It's not good for you. There's nothing good to come out of it. Not that it's the most important thing is Ainara. It's not an order of importance. The point is, is that nothing good's going to come out of the world knowing what you look like. Nothing good. Nothing good has ever happened from such a thing. Two, there are a lot of sick people in the world. And those sick people, even if you are dressing modest, I'm, I'm talking about people that dress modest. I'm not talking about people that are immodest. Immodest is a kalvachomer. It's a needless to say. If you're immodest, I'm not even talking to you. This is not relevant to you. This is not a comment. You just, you, we have to do a whole new shiul for you if you're still immodest right now. Look about somebody that's modest. I'm talking with the kisui rosh. I'm talking about somebody that's covering themselves. Modest already. Don't have your pictures online. Why? There are a lot of sick people that will take your picture and do strange things with it. What do you need that headache for? What do you need the headache for? For what? What good do you get out of it? Now, someone could tell me, yes, but what about if I'm trying to do a video and I'm trying to teach Torah? Trying to teach Torah. Or I'm trying to do a picture to teach other women how to dress modestly. Is that allowed? Based on Alakha, yes, it's allowed, but it's not recommended. Based on Alakha, it's allowed for you to make a video to tell people about Avraham Avinu and Sarah Imenu and Moshe Rabbeinu and whatever you want to talk about that's Dvar Torah. I'm not talking about talking about your, uh, your, your marriage. And how you hate your husband this week and next week you love him like some people do. Every day it's a new status change. I'm married, I'm divorced. I hate my husband, I love my husband. I hate my wife, I love my wife. I'm th- throwing away my kids. Okay, I just got adopted one. Every day people tell the world what's happening to their life. Why? Why are you reporting it to 2 billion people? Get a rabbi, get a friend, get a spouse. Stop sharing your life. Every day, oh, my marriage is over. And you feel this is the best place to announce it? Two billion people need to know your marriage is over? And you think this is going to help your life? What if she changes her mind or he changes his mind? So what are you going to tell people? Oh, we worked it out? You look, you look psychotic. You look, psycho- you look like you're making yourself and whoever is stupid enough to be with you look like a fool. You look like a teenager that's, that has nothing, no direction in their life. I have a boyfriend, I have a girlfriend, I have a boyfriend, I have a girlfriend, I have two. I have boyfriend and girlfriend sometimes. Like this Kevin Spacey. 
imbecile. He says, yes, I've had relationships with men and women throughout my life. And now I choose to just be with men. He's proud of this. And the same day he's announcing that he molested somebody 30 years ago. Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't even... Mamash, when you have no Hashem in your life, you can't even see that you are in Tzohar Tachat. You can't even see that you're bathing in feces. You can't. You're thinking it's a jacuzzi. So, you want to give Shure Torah as a woman, teach other women how to be modest, teach them of a parashat shavua. It's allowed, but it's not recommended. Why? Number one, the same things I said still apply. Sick people in the world, there's really not that much benefit out of it. There's already plenty of material without you. And the reality of it is that you just added an additional tikkun for yourself. And that is to be modest in front of the camera. Which for women, in my opinion, is almost impossible in this generation. It's almost impossible for a woman to be modest in front of a camera in today's age. Why? They have to make a look. They have to do something to get the camera's attention. They think that it's like, uh, you know, Vogue magazine is, is, is doing a cover story on them. So they make these faces and they're flirtatious because it's cute to be flirtatious. But they don't realize that it's turning men on. And that's immodest. Oh, I just got this challah. It's so great. Okay, well, that's not, that's not a tzaddikah behavior. I'm sorry. That's not what you're, that's not, you're not supposed to do that. And on the files, and the hair, the, 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 the wig is like all the way to the floor. You can't do it. You can't do it. You're killing it. All the toy you just talked about, God doesn't need it. He doesn't need it. Why are you putting? Why are you putting yourself in that? Day? Why? For what? I have. Yeah, I mean, trust me, Baruch Hashem, I work really, really hard to not see anything. But every single time somebody sends me something, oh, what do you think of this rabbanit? What do you think of this video of somebody saying Devar Torah? I'm not talking about immodest things. I have yet, I have yet to see uh, a woman that's uh, you know giving, doing a video in a mo- with modest behavior. What? It's, 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 it's impossible. It's, it's it's the nature of a woman, unless they're older and they're mamash like ultra ultra tzaddikot. But it's almost impossible for this generation. It's part, it's part of the nature. It's part of the... To capture attention. You have to be flirtatious. You're ruining it. You're ruining that entire Torah he said. You're ruining it. If you really care about Torah, do a voice only. Why don't we need to see you? Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a mistake. You shouldn't, you shouldn't necessarily look for Facebook to meet your special person. You should, I mean, there are obviously dating sites. I understand that helps with Shiduchim. But there are kosher Shiduchim sites that are run by Shatchanim. So they're, they're, uh, they're monitored to some extent. Uh, to some extent. 
and uh, they also monitor what kind of pictures you put. Putting the face, fine, there's no problem if it's for an actual purpose. But the reality of it is the overwhelming majority of the purposes that people put their pictures online is not for Shiduch. It's not for Shiduch. What you ate last week is not for your Shiduch. What you ate this morning, it's not for your Shiduch. The vacation you took, it's not for your Shiduch. It's not relevant. So yes, if it's really for Shiduch, one headshot, entire internet should have one headshot of you. Fine, if you're looking for Shiduch. If you're married with three kids, what do we need to see a picture still? So that's the thing. Is it really for the Shiduch or is it really just an excuse? And that's why I'm saying when someone is living a life that's still 50-50, that's still making excuses, they're putting themselves at risk. And the reason why is because if you're still chasing money, you're very far from Hashem. If you're still looking for the materialistic life we hear so many horrible news about, you're very far away from Hashem. You could be praying nets every day, means nothing. You could be learning Torah even, means nothing. If you're looking, if you are actively looking to be rich, that's like you're actually trying to be rich. If you happen to be rich because Hashem blesses you, it's a different story. But if like your like purpose in life is to be rich, you're far from Hashem. And the reason why is because you're missing the point where Hashem is telling you now something very, very clearly. Everyone and anyone that people aspire to be, that's obviously outside of the Torah world, is being exposed as the biggest loser in the world. You want to be a movie star? Name one that's a winner. In life, I'm not talking about winner in bank accounts. It means nothing. I had money. It means nothing. Zero. Zero. Less than zero. Zero at least you could do something with. Without getting into trouble. Name one that's an actual winner in real life. Look at what's happening in the news. This one is cheating on his wife. The other one is divorced five times. This one is a drug, a drug addiction. This one, alcohol addiction. This one, sex addiction. This one is a, uh, you know, molesting kids. This one is part of a pedophile ring. Now they're saying it's a whole thing. It's not like, like one or two or three or four cases of pedophilia in Hollywood. It's a whole ring. It's the hidden secret of Hollywood is pedophilia. And as a matter of fact, they're saying it's their biggest secret for decades. It's part of Hollywood. Just like being a waiter before you're a successful actor is, apparently being a pedophile or being connected to some pedophile also has to do something with it. It's the most craziness. And people aspire to be actors every day. Oh, look at my daughter. She's so pretty. She's going to be an actress one day. Shem Rachem. Chas Shalom. She can be an actress. Why? Just kill her now. Why do you want to ruin her life? No, she's going to be a singer. Chas Shalom. Why? Why do you want to ruin her life? Every, every parent wants their kid to be a celebrity. If you're really trying to be righteous with Hashem, you should say, Chas Shalom. My kid's going to be a celebrity. Chas Shalom. God forbid my kid's in a celebrity. Name one celebrity that's a winner in real life. Drug addictions, divorces. None of them can stay married to the same person for more than a couple of years. Once in a while, you hear a success story. 
I heard Will Ferrell is married for like 30 years. I mean, that's like a metzia. That's like uh, finding a diamond on Mars and you haven't been there yet. No, he's divorced. Yeah, he's divorced. He's divorced like the rest of them. The reality of it is that people that are aspiring to be some level of celebrity, movie star, athlete, of any kind, any sport, you're far from Hashem, and in essence, you're, you're asking Hashem to put you in Gehenom. This week's parasha, Avram Avinu is recovering from the Brit Milah, from the covenant he took with Hashem of circumcising himself. And Hashem sends him the three angels, one to heal his wife, Sarah, and in essence, give her a womb she didn't have. Create a womb out of thin air. Only Hashem can create out of nothing. Second one is going to be there to heal Avram Avinu. You also have the last one is going to be there to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Now Hashem says in uh, chapter 18, verse 17, shall I conceal from Avram what I do? After he tells him, listen, next year you're going to have a kid. And uh, there's the whole thing between Sarai Menu. She laughed about it. And Hashem's questioning why is she laughing. She, she, does she believe that I can't do it? She's embarrassed by this. But after this, he still didn't tell Avram Avinu that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, why does, he feel, why does Hashem, Hashem feel bad for not telling Avram Avinu? He says, now that I'm blessing him, that he's going to have a son, and, this, and the son is going to have all these descendants, it's going to turn into a great nation. And all the nations of the earth are going to bless themselves by his name. Because I love him. I love Avram. Why do I love Avram? It says in verse 19, For I loved him because he commands his children and his household after him that they keep the way of Hashem, doing charity and justice in order that Hashem might then bring upon Avram that which he has spoken of him. He says, why do I love Avram? He does what I said. He commands his family to do the will of Hashem. That's why I love him. Simple. Not because Avram jumped into the fire. Not because Avram did Brit Milav, you know, at the age of 99 specifically. No, not because of that. He lives a life where he decided, I said, he does. That's why I love him. It's a pretty simple arrangement. So then Avram is told by one of the angels that Hashem is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So Avram runs to Hashem 
figuratively speaking, and says, will you stamp out the righteous along with the wicked? Are you going to kill righteous people and wicked people in Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, maybe there's some righteous people. Maybe there's 50, maybe there's 45, maybe there's 40. From here we learn how a Jew negotiates. He says there, maybe there's 50. I won't destroy if there's 50. Maybe there's 45. What, are you going to destroy only for five difference? Not that the fact that there's 50 million that are Reshaim. Oh, it's five difference. You agree to 50. So five difference from 50 and 45. You already see Abraham Avinu teaching us how to negotiate. Don't talk about all the bad. Kafschut. So, Hashem says, no, 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 I won't destroy them. But the reality of it is that even if there were ten, He would not destroy it, which tells us that there were none. Nothing. As a matter of fact, even Lot that was saved, had limited merit. His merit was still limited, even though he had merit to be saved. It was only because of Avram, not because of himself. So now, Hashem sends these angels, two angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot meets them at the gate. He knows that this is not a place that welcomes guests. And he knows that these are angels. It's not uh, hidden from him like it was hidden originally from Abraham. And he wants to hide them. But immediately, the Rashaim of the city all realize that there's guests in the city and they say something horrendous. And it says, and they called, they meaning the entire city, everyone. Everyone left what they were doing. And they came to Lot. Imagine, you have a little house, or a big house, whatever it is. Everyone in the city left what they're doing. Left their baseball, their basketball, their football, their uh, MTV cribs, their whatever they were doing. Left everything, they went to your front yard. Looked like uh, Woodstock in front of your front yard. And this is what they tell you. And they say to you, they say to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? The two people that came to you. Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Chazal says, what does it mean so that we may know them? We learn this from Adam Arishon. When Adam yada et chava. Adam yada, Adam knew his wife, meaning Adam was intimate with his wife. said, bring these two men that came to you so we could rape them. This is what's on their mind. All of these people are millionaires. All of these people have all the money in the world. Apparently this was a, uh, a prequel to Hollywood. So Lot comes out said, no, don't act wickedly. Don't act. Uh, don't act wickedly, my brothers. I have two daughters. Take them. Two virgin daughters. It's the strangest two things I've ever seen in my life. In one hand, the guy is trying to like defend these guests of honor. On the other hand, he says, hey, by the way, take my kids. Do whatever you want with them. 
Why? What is, how, 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 does, how, how do we explain this? On one hand, you're defending your guests with your life, really. His life is in danger. On another hand, you're putting your two daughters, which you're supposed to protect more than the guests. Because here, Lot wasn't really protecting anyone other than himself. He was protecting his own kavod. He cared less about his daughters and he cared less about the guests. He cared only about his kavod. The fact that they were in his house, these two guests, that's the only thing. He says, oh, they're under my roof. Under my roof. You know, I got it. It's my thing. You're, you're under me. You know, like the mobsters talk. You're under me. Don't worry. Don't, don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. What do you mean you'll take care of me? Well, how are you going to take care of me? Oh, well, I'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. Both of you end up in jail. It's like, oh, I took care of you. Didn't I take care of you there? What do you mean? I'm in jail for the next 10 years. Yeah, but hey, could have been worse. Friends like that, who needs enemies? So that's Lot. Lot was trying to protect this kavod. But now, the angels tell him, let's get out of here. They make everyone blind. And still these people tried to break down the door to find the two men. Not because of any other reason other than the fact that they still want to rape them. They just all, the entire city, lost their vision. They can't see. They just made a big production. The next Terminator movie, the next, uh, uh, whatever, Transformers movie. They can't see their own production. What do they care about? Having sex with two men. That's all they care about. This is a sick mind. So what's happening today is nothing changed. Nothing changed. You have these people that have zillions of dollars. Zillions. They have more money than they can count. What do they do? They still rape little boys. Why? Still, like, why? You could get a regular person if you, if you whatever, just do it in a normal way. Why do you have to take advantage of little kids? Ruin his life. Sick people. Sick. It was up to me, every single one of them will get death penalty. Every single one. After they get tortured for a nice amount of time. Sick people. Sick, sick people that torture kids with their disgusting minds and actions. And unfortunately, this disgusting behavior is everywhere. Sometimes these sick people are in Hollywood. Sometimes they're in a synagogue. Sometimes they're in church. Sometimes they're in the office. Sometimes they're the teacher or the principal. You never know. This is why Judaism has laws. It says you're not allowed to leave your kids with just some stranger. You have to double check who you're leaving your kids with. It doesn't matter that he's a teacher or he has a degree or he's a millionaire or he's a celebrity. It's irrelevant. If you have... A young girl that's over three years old, three years or above, you are not allowed to leave her with a stranger. Not allowed. Not allowed to leave your three-year-old daughter with some stranger. If it's school, it's a different story. But the school, you have to check out. You have to double-check, who are these teachers? Is it some guy off the street, or is it somebody that's like an honorable person? People just send their kids to schools, like, uh, it's like sheep. Yeah, no, it's a school, it's a big school, they... Didn't they invest $100 million into the building? Okay, if it was the building teaching, no problem. But it's not the building teacher, it's the teacher's teaching. 
It's like this guy went into a kosher, went to a uh, food store, and he asked the guy, the balabite, is the uh, shawarma here kosher? He goes, yeah, it's kosher, it's kosher. He goes, can I see? Can I see the uh, certificate? He goes, look, Baba Sali, Rabbi Meir Balanes, Ravovadia, ta ta ta. He goes, okay, no, the kosher certificate. He goes, look, the Magid, Miduvna, the Arizal. He goes, no, don't worry. If it was them here and you were in the picture, I'd buy the shawarma, no problem, no certificate. But since it's you here and them in the picture, show me the certificate. Show me the certificate. Today's world, unfortunately, even the certificates are questionable. Even the certificates, the kosher certificates, are questionable. There's a big, big problem in Israel where even the major rabbanim won't eat in certain kosher stores because the kosher is not so kosher. Same thing as in America. Just that in America, it hasn't gone to that extent yet. No one cares enough to make a balagan yet. In Israel, it's a small country. Easy to make balagan. So, you can't just send your kids away and think, no, it's a big school. They invested $100 million into the building. Who cares? People are impressed with these big numbers and these big money. It means nothing. Look at all of these losers coming out or being caught. Being rapists, being molesters, being all types of sick-minded people. You can't send your kids to wolves and expect them to still be okay. And what do you think, a seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old kid is going to come home and say, oh yeah, everything is, you know, wasn't so good in school? No, he's going to be embarrassed. And unfortunately, sometimes our communities protect these predators. Why? We're embarrassed. We don't want to tell the world that we have a molester inside a Jewish community. Oh, and by the way, as a side note, he donates a million dollars a year. You and him, you that protect him and him should both go to Gainom forever. Protecting these predators. He's destroying people. Destroying people. We can't protect these people. But the reality of it is, the reality is that we have to take some responsibility too. Of course, this does not remove any of the responsibility of these evil, evil people that I just told you moments ago. I would kill them myself if I could. I hate people that hurt kids. There's just a few things in the world that are just like above and beyond. This is worse than all of them. People that hurt little children have no right to live. No right. Hurt a kid that doesn't have free choice. You remove this choice. You confuse them. You, you took away his... Just whatever. These people act like that. They have no right to live. Unfortunately, the law li- lets them live. Hashem lets them live. So here, we have a choice. What's our choice? Our choice is to be like Avraham Avinu. Make the decision. Are you going to continue letting your kid go into the world unprotected, making a mind for himself, making a choice for himself as if he knows the difference between good and bad? Or are you going to help him? 
Are you going to tell them that baseball, basketball, football, and being a movie star and a superhero and an X-Men, that's what he should aspire to be? Or he should aspire to be Moshe Rabbeinu? If your kid is aspiring to be the next NBA player, you are at fault partly for him messing up his entire life. You are at fault that he has no connection whatsoever to Yiddishkeit. You are at fault that he doesn't know if God's real or not. Why? Because you made the basketball player God. When you told him that he's allowed to compete on a Shabbat, because technically it's not Chilul Shabbat to play basketball. So you told him that it's okay to play in his little league basketball on Shabbat, as long as he slept over his friend's house and he was part of the tournament and he didn't turn on the light and he didn't really violate Shabbat outright, but he was part of a tournament, it's okay to do it. It's okay. But he just ruined his life. Why? You told him basketball is more important than God. It was better off he drove on Shabbat. It was better off. Why? At least it's obvious. He's not hiding it anymore. Haman knew he's Haman. Haman knew he's Haman. He didn't care. He's Haman. Titus knew he's Titus. Titus in English. He knew he's Titus. He knew. He didn't care. He went for it. If you're going to create a little Hitler, let him be a Hitler then. But if you're trying to get your kid to be okay, help him. Help her. Stop telling him basketball is more important than Hashem. You have to give them better direction. Why? Because the world is full of predators that are trying to destroy them spiritually or physically. Whether it's terrorists in New York that are starting to run over people or in different parts of America that are shooting people every other day in public schools. When I was a kid, not even a kid, I was already a teenager. You had the Columbine shooting. That was like, wow. The whole nation, 300 million people were shocked. Columbine, kids shooting up a school. Craziness. How could it be? Now it's every week. Oh, it's another shooting. Ah, shucks. Let's change the channel. Yeah, he just killed 50 kids. Change the channel, put some baseball on. Change the channel, put the stock market on. What is CNBC? Does this affect the Dow Jones? Ah, thank God Microsoft is not down. Yeah, but he just shot 50 kids. 50 kids lost their life in a school. They went to learn math, history. They think they're, still, they're coming from a monkey. They died thinking they came from a monkey. What do they teach them in these schools? They all came from monkeys. They all died thinking they came from a monkey. And you're worried about Microsoft or Google stock? It's our fault. It's our fault. We just send them to the wolves thinking, ah, they're going to figure it out on their own like I did. You're sending them into the exile without any instructions. As a parent, you should be arrested. You shouldn't be having kids. It's not fair. You're ruining their life before they even start. You're telling them that being a movie star or some type of celebrity is a good thing. When you know yourself, you've never read a good story about a movie star in real life. Never. They're all losers. They've all been married a million times. 
There's always exception to the case, but that's not reality. But you're telling them that all these rich and famous people that you see on TV, you should be like him. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. You should be a very simple person. Eved Hashem. Work for Hashem. What? It's the only job that pays all the time. So now, in this parasha, we learn that Hashem, at some point, He closes the store. And when He closes the store, He doesn't give us much time. He makes everything obvious. Right now, He's fast-forwarding everything. For all of those deniers that terrorism has arrived to America, it's becoming more and more difficult to deny. The shootings, the bombings, they're becoming more rampant. They're becoming a weekly thing. Everyone is a cameraman. Everyone is a, is a, is a newscaster with an iPhone. You have a phone, you're a newscaster. Two seconds, everything goes online. You can't hide anything. 500 people call it a conspiracy, people still believe it. It doesn't make a difference. Hashem is bringing to light, He's telling you, listen, the things you aspire to be in Hollywood, look at them. Pedophiles, terrorists, thieves, whatever. Look at these people. You want to be like that? No. Then He's showing you in the religious world who's real and who's not. He's showing you the difference. Why? He's closing the store. Time for you to make a choice. Are you going in or are you not? Time for you to make a choice. You can still walk around, look like a goy, enjoy. No problem. Mashiach shows up, no more time. You're still doubting if you're proud to be a Jew or not? If you're proud to be a righteous Gentile or not? You still want to look like you're like cool? Fine. Store's about to be closed. What are you going to do then? Oh, no, no, I didn't mean it. I, didn't mean, I, 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 I thought I had more time. No more time. No more time. Avraham Avinu tried to buy more time. Hashem says, no more time. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in an instant. This is just a prequel of what's to be when the Mashiach comes and he sees some places around the world today. What can save us? Rabbi Noray Omer. Eve gole l'mkom Torah. V'al tomar sheit avo acharecha, shechaverecha yekaymua beyadecha, v'el binatecha al tishayin. Rabbi Noray says, Exile yourself, to a place of Torah. And do not assume that it will come after you, for it is your colleagues who will cause it to remain with you. And do not rely on your own understanding. So as Rabotenu teaches us, always good to know who we're talking about. Who is Rabbi Noray? Initially, it looks like we're meeting a new Tana. But, the Gemara teaches us that Rabbi Norai is really another name for Rabbi Meir Balanes. Some say 
it's uh, Rabbi Nechemia. But the leading opinion is that it's Rabbi Meir Balanes. But why was he called Rabbi Neorai? Neorai means enlightened. So, since he enlightened the eyes of the sages in their approach of Alakha, meaning he gave them Chidushim, called like he's uh, the enlightened one. He's all. Nehorai is the root of it, is all. All means light. So, not much more we can add that would even be sufficient about Rabbi Meir We've talked about him before. Every Sephardic or Ashkenazi Jew knows who Rabbi Meir was. We know that any time we see a Gemara, it is very likely that Rabbi Meir had something to do with it. Many times even though he's not even mentioned by name. So someone says, any time it says someone says, it's Rabbi Meir. And many times, most, not all, but most of the times, Allah is like Rabbi Meir. So one of the five students that Rabbi Akiva restarted the world of Torah was with Rabbi Meir Baranes, which means that our entire oral Torah, he's one of the pillars that it depends on. Now, one of the alachot in the Torah, the Gemara says in Brachot, is that when you write a Sefer Torah, you have to emulate Hashem. Meaning, 974 generations before Hashem created the world, He created the Torah. Now, the way He created the Torah is that He took black fire that He created out of nothing, and He wrote on white fire. Symbolizing today by Sefer Torah. Sefer Torah is a white scroll with black ink on it. There's no green, there's no gray, there's no, no other colors, black. Symbolizing the black fire on white fire. So, every, ever since then, every single Torah scroll that's kosher had to be written as a copy. Meaning, you had to use some copy that you're copying from. You cannot write a Torah scroll from your memory, even if you know by heart. If you're a scribe, after a while, you know the Torah by heart. If you're a chazan, a Baal Kore that reads from the Torah every week, after a while, you know the whole Torah by heart. Even if you know by heart. Allah is, you're not allowed to write it by heart. You're also not allowed to read by heart. You have to see it. Significance to seeing the words. So if you're writing a Torah scroll, you have to have another Torah scroll next to it, and you're copying it word for word. Can't do it for memory. Got it so far? But the Gemara says that Rabbi Meir Baraness was also a scribe. He was a scribe, but he didn't use a scroll. He didn't use a scroll. To say, how could it be that Rabbi Meir Baraness broke Alakha? Could it be? Could you, could you even say such a thing? Said Chas v'Shalom. Rabbi Meir is different. What does it mean? Rabbi Meir was different. We changed the law for him? No, we didn't change the law. He's following the law. He's following the. He's, he is also cop. When he writes a sefer Torah, he's also copying a sefer Torah. Where's the sefer Torah? He sees it all the time. To him, there's an image of a sefer Torah in his eyes. He sees it, Mamash, like you see this book. Like you see me. He sees the Sefer Torah right there. He sees it. You can't see it. It's your problem. 
But he sees the Sefer Torah. It's not memory. He sees the Sefer Torah. That's what we mean. Alvayalenu to live like that for like a moment in life. Have a dream that we're like that even. A dream. Have a dream like that. I wouldn't want to wake up. So Rabbi Noorai says, exile yourself to a place of Torah. There are many people, Baruch Hashem, that take some of the things we say seriously and they start learning Torah. Start learning Torah every day. Not just the shurim that we make, not just the clips for five minutes. Almost, they take a book, they take Gemara, they take Chumash, they take Sifret Sadikim. They start making Torah part of their life. And they think that that's enough. That if everything that I set up till now were to happen, Mashiach comes, Gogu Magog takes the next chapter, chaos gets to a higher level than it is already now, they think they'll be fine. Well, Rabbi Noorai, a.k.a. Rabbi Meir, is here to tell you it's not. It's not. Don't get too comfortable. Why? If you are expecting to become someone that's okay, meaning someone that's acquiring Torah at the comfort of his home, at the comfort of his convenience, whatever's convenient for him, he learns. Whatever he feels like it, he learns. Whatever book's in front of him, that's what he'll learn. Ah, there's another book on top that you really should be reading. Yeah, it's too high, I'm tired. I'm just going to read this one. You ever meet those people? You don't want to get up just to get the book on top of the shelf? Forget about read the book. Read the book is already. Get the book. They don't want to get the book from top of the shelf. They exist, these people. They don't want to get up. Or the guy says, no, you know what? I know there's a Shul Torah, but uh, I'll watch it tomorrow on YouTube. I'll watch it on the website. I'm going to go to bezatashem.org, right? I want to watch it there. I'm going to watch it on Facebook. I'm going to watch it on Facebook. But why? But you live 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour away from the shoe. Why don't you come to the Ah, it's long. It finishes at midnight. By the time I get home, I have work tomorrow. Like he's the only person in the world that has work. Nobody else works tomorrow. It's too hard. It's too inconvenient. It's too this. It's too that. Maybe if he makes a shoe earlier. Maybe he makes a shiur, I, I bet you, I make the shiur at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, still the same thing. doesn't make a difference. I've, I've tried it a few times. makes a difference. Yet uh, works all the day. All day works. But some people say, if it's not convenient for me to come, I'm not coming. If it's not convenient for me to learn, I'm not learning. I'll learn when I feel like it. You, my friend... are far away from reality. And the reason why is because the Gemara in Masechet Brachot, Resh Lakish says someone that wants to acquire Torah, which is the only thing that's going to save you at the end of times that we find ourselves in. That along with Gmilut Chasadim, meaning with Kiruv, or overwhelming kindness. If you really want to acquire Torah, 
you have to be ready to kill yourself. At the very least, get ready to be uncomfortable. You don't have to literally go kill yourself. We're not uh, terrorists. We're not uh, Palestinians. Meaning, you have to exert yourself, just like you would exert yourself to chase a billion dollars or a million dollars or whatever money you've been trying to chase your whole life, just like you were trying to chase your career, just like you were trying to chase your spouse, just like you were trying to chase every dream you've ever had, times it by a million, that's Torah. Meaning, if you're not ready to go into the exile, to go acquire Torah, get uncomfortable, you haven't even begun tshuva. You haven't even begun. If you're only willing to learn if it's convenient for you, you have no idea what value Torah holds in your life. If you are only willing to learn if it's convenient, then you haven't established the fact in your mind and your neshama haven't agreed on one thing. What haven't they agreed on? They haven't agreed on whether Torah is the cure for your spiritual disease or not. Your mind is saying no, because your mind is trying to chase money. Your mind is trying to chase business. Your mind is trying to chase girls. Your mind is trying to chase fame and fortune and whatever else your mind is trying to chase. Your neshama is screaming, no, no, and forget all of that stuff. We need Torah. We need to save ourselves. It's the only thing. Your money is not going to help you in Olamaba. Unless you used it on saving Jews. Unless you used it on helping people that couldn't help themselves. If you use the money to buy another gate for the uh, Noahide Zoo, it's not going to help you. If you left it in a portfolio full of Microsoft and Google stock, it's not going to help you. If you're donating it to the Gay Foundation, it's definitely not going to help you. It's not going to help you. What's going to help you, Neshama says? All things going to help you is Torah. So if your Neshama is having a debate still, we have a problem. Because the only way you'll be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice of taking yourself out of your comfort zone and going into the exile, meaning Rambam tells you, you have to move. Where? The desert. Why? That's when you get Olam Abba. But it's hot there, no? If that was your answer, you have a problem. If you're not sure if you can study an hour or two a day, you still don't realize really the Torah is the cure. You have a spiritual disease like all of us, and Torah is the only cure. You're still thinking something else is going to cure it. A lot of these speakers I hear, people always ask me of my opinion of speakers. To be honest with you, it's very, very hard to find a decent, honest speaker. And I'm not talking about the overall world. I'm talking about the Jewish world. I'm talking about the Torah world. And the reason why is because many times the, speak, the speakers themselves, many times, are in bigger problems than the audience. The speaker himself is involved 
with chasing the dream that he's not supposed to be chasing in the first place. He's trying to become a celebrity. He's trying to be popular. He's not trying to save souls. He's trying to be liked. He's trying to make money. He's trying to build an enterprise. He's trying to show off his muscles. He's trying to show off his quick speech. Most of these speakers, with the keeper, without it, doesn't make a difference. A lot of them, they just sound like coaches in the business world. Business coaches, life coaches, they call themselves. They just try to motivate you to do something. What? I have no idea. It's definitely not Torah. I heard one guy, somebody sent it to me, he was uh, interviewed... This guy is apparently a very successful businessman. And people like him. And the guy asks them, What's the secret to your success? Now, he has a keeper. He's supposed to say, Everyone, Hashem, Torah, something connected to those two words. Well, he says, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the secret to my success is. Oh, you're such a motivating speaker. People really like you. They're motivated by you. What's your secret? I don't know. I don't know. You're you're a rabbi? You're a spiritual leader that's going to bring the Mashiach for us and going to save us? You better come soon before you become more popular. Abino Ai says, get uncomfortable. Where did he learn it from? He learned it from his rabbi. Who's his rabbi? Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is the pillar of self-sacrifice for Torah. He went into the exile, left everything for 24 years. We leave for 24 minutes, we already get a text message. Are you home yet? Are you coming? Are you going to be there? 24 minutes. How long is it going to be this year? Two hours. Why can't you watch it tomorrow on YouTube? You learned it from his rabbi. Why? It's the only way you could acquire Torah. If you see some of these tzaddikim, they took this Mishnah and they applied it to their life in ways that is mamash against modern logic. Modern logic tells you if you're a teacher, who should be your student? Your kids. If you're a teacher, first student should be your kids. If you're a doctor, you should treat your family aside from the public to make money and so on and so forth, but in reality, if you're a doctor and you're a heart surgeon and somebody in your family is going to do surgery, you should be the one that gives them the surgery. Tiferet Yisrael says, if you want to succeed in life or in Torah, which in essence should mean the same thing, you have to get ready to move away. You're not going to succeed at home. The Abarbanel 
said, אין נביא בעירו. אין נביא בעירו. What does it mean, אין נביא בעירו? He was very, very successful, both as a Torah scholar, and he was also the treasurer in Spain, right during the Inquisition. So we're talking about somebody that wasn't just a Torah life. He's a multi-millionaire. He was the treasurer of, uh, for the king. And he's one of the major commentaries on the entire Torah, Pirkei and everything else. And Abba Banel says, and there's also several other places in the Torah, and the commentaries that are saying the same thing. This apparently has a source in Yerushalmi. It says, En Navi Beiro. There's no prophet in his own city. You never see Hashem sending a prophet to the city that he, was, that he grew up in. Never. Always somewhere else. Why? They're always going to remember him before he became a prophet. They're always going to remember him before he became tzaddik. They're always going to remember him as the troublemaker through rocks and windows. They're never going to let him live that up. They're never going to let him get out of that image. You want to succeed in life? You have to move away. Why? Because your neighbors, the store clerks, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your world is never going to let you get out. They're going to keep you as the little you. They're going to keep you as the little you. The little you that got in trouble for smoking pot at 13 years old. You're 37. You haven't done anything wrong in 25 years. They still remind you. Do you remember when I caught you? Caught me what? What did I do? Oh, when you were 13. I forgot. I don't have memory for 30-something years. Remember when I caught you? Caught me what? When you broke the orange juice maker, they don't even make orange juice makers anymore, Ima. I'll buy you a new one if they did. They're never going to let you grow up. They're never going to let you grow up. Why? You're always going to be a baby. Just like my little Sarah and my little Ovadia are little babies, they're going to be babies in my eyes for the rest of their life. She could be 20, she could be 60, she could be whatever. She's going to be two years old in my eyes for the rest of her life. I didn't understand what I'm telling you until I became a parent. We'd always make fun of like, you know, my mom would always, God bless her, she's amazing. She'd always, like, we'd always make fun of it. It's like, she wants all four boys. It's me and three brothers. And she has a hard time with the fact that like, you know, initially she wanted all of us to work together. We worked together for a little while and it was a nightmare. And then we stopped. We worked a different way. She didn't like it. She wants to work together again. She worked together again. It was a nightmare again. It never changed. It's hard. But she, like, we always make fun of it. We'd say, Ima wants us to all go back into our stomach. All of us back there. We always make fun of it. But in reality, as a parent now, I 100% understand her. You don't want the kids to grow up. You don't want them to go home. You don't want them to have friends. You don't want them to do it. You want them to be there for you. It's yours. The reality of it is, that mentality will suffocate them. Will suffocate them. You got to let them go. At some point, you have to let them go. At some point. Not when they're five. <laughs> Not when they're ten and you're sending them to a big school because they have a big budget. At some point, after you verify that where you're sending them is the right place and you're doing something responsible, as an adult that knows the difference between right and wrong, unlike a 15 or 18-year-old 
who for the most part do not know the difference between right and wrong. They don't. Especially this generation. They still aspire to be LeBron James. They still aspire to be, I don't know, some movie star, whatever their names are. So, if you want to succeed, you're going to have to move out. If you want your kids to succeed, you're going to have to send them out. Now, what are some of the examples? Rabbi Yudah Nasi. It doesn't get better than that. Rabbi Yudah Nasi came from the family of David Melech. Rabban Gamliel was his, was his father. Rabbi Yudah Nasi was the president, was the head of the Beddin. Had an enormous yeshiva, but even he himself sent his son away to school. He sent, he sent his son away to learn under Rav. He sent his son away to learn under Rav. That was his name, Rav. Even though he could have taught him himself, he's not going to learn the same with me as he's going to learn with a different Talmud Chacham. He's not going to learn the same with me. I'm still Abba. He still wants to get in trouble with me. And I'm going to have to let him go because he's my son. If he doesn't do his homework, I'm not going to really punish him. He's my son. If he gets his Mishnayot, what am I going to tell him? If I do anything, is my wife's going to kill me. One of the Gdolea Dor in America, Rabbi... Um, Shmuel Kamenetsky, Kanievsky, is, uh, I'm sorry, Kamenetsky, Kamenetsky. Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky, he, uh, his father was one of the pillars of American Judaism, American Jewry. Him and Rabbi Alan Kotlil were like, two of the main foundations, and also Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, all were giants. But uh, Rabbi uh, Yaakov Kamenetsky and uh, Rabbi Aaron Kotler were lifelong friends. Both were giant chachamim. Both were gdoledo. I mean, it's just a, uh, the, the life these people lived was extraordinary. Now, Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky is the current Gdolador in America, one of them. Where did he learn? He didn't learn with his father. He learned the yeshiva with Rabbi Aaron Kotler. He learned with him. He learned with his father's friend. So his father obviously knew where he was sending him to. Even though he knew the same thing. It's not like he knew more than him. You can't compare the two. You can't compare two Chachamim. You have to be like them to compare them. But you see that they send him away. They send him away because they say, he's still my son. I can't do the same thing that he's going to do. He has to grow up somewhere else. Then he can come home. I know this from my own uh, experience. My brother, my youngest brother, God bless him, I tried having him work for me when I was in the business world a few times. A few times. I really, really wanted him to work for me. And because he had, he had, uh, he had what it took, as far as like skill set, God given talent, ability to speak, 
He had a good mind. But it just never seemed to work out. It never seemed to work out. It just, uh, he wouldn't do it. He would lose steam. It just never seemed to work out. As much as I wanted him to do it, as much as he even himself at some point wanted to do it, it just never seemed to work out. And I tried it. We tried a few times. And you know, especially when you're successful at something, you want to give it to somebody that's in your family. You don't want to give it to some stranger. You know, one day you all think, one day I'm going to die. One day I'm going to retire. One day I'm going to sell it. I want, so- I want my number two guy. I don't want it to be some stranger. I want it to be somebody in my family. So my, one of my other brothers worked for me, and he was extraordinary. But I knew he didn't want to do it forever. And we always wanted to bring my other brother in it as well. But it just never seemed to work out. But now, Baruch Hashem, he's in a completely different business. He's in a uh, jewelry diamond business with my other brother, my oldest brother, Oshri. And Baruch Hashem, they're doing really well. And, uh, but the version of him today versus the version of what I had, no, 10 years ago, are two completely different people. And it's not because of the age difference. Of course, obviously, he matured a little bit and so on. But it's not necessarily the age difference, really. What changed? In between, he went to work for a stranger. In between, my place and my other brother's place, he went to work for a stranger. You go work for a stranger, there's no more special privileges. There's no more you can show up whenever you feel like it. Ah, and if you're late, ah. I'll close my eyes. I'll close my ears. I'll close my mouth. I'll close my nose too. Whatever. You don't see. You don't. You don't want. You don't want. You're. You don't. Nobody gets in trouble in your eyes. What? Okay, you get in trouble, but then you let it go. The reality of it is that these special privileges kill them. They never grow. So when a person wants to succeed. They have to move out for their own good. Number one, it's very difficult for you to get out of your own comfort zone. When you're at home, you're comfortable at home. You get up whenever you feel like getting up. You eat whenever you feel like eating. You could be in a pajama all day. You just you do whatever you want. You have to get out. You have to get out. Being too comfortable, it's not good for you. Even though I work out of the house, I have an office in the house. But the office is an office. There's no like games in the office. It's office. Office. We study. We learn. We do the uh, run the organization. It's an office. It's not like uh, you know. Let's let's have the uh, kids' crib in there also, and you know, put some toys on the. No, it's, it's an office. We work. It's hard. It's hard. The difference. Why? Because I work 24 hours a day. So it's like you you're in. Constantly in the same place all day. There's never a break. So it's you have to much get yourself out of the office to go. Oh, by the way, I have a family. I have to go say hi to them. These two-year-old kids I just talked to you about. I have to go say hi to them. They're actually in the same vicinity. It's hard, but you have to do it. You have to do something. But if you're young and you're still trying to do something with your life, you have to don't do that. Don't do what I do. I already have Bochas many years experience. You have to go work somewhere else for someone else for a stranger. Get some scars from somewhere else. Because it's very, very easy to become comfortable in your own house. 
Second thing is, like we mentioned, you're always going to be a child in your, eye, in your in the eyes of your parents. So, studying while you're still at home, it's not good for you. If you can go away, go away. Third thing we also mentioned, your community is never going to let you grow. So all of a sudden, you went from being this little troublemaker, Moishele, to now you're a Moishele, the Talmit Chacham. They're not going to let you be Talmit Chacham. Why? You're the Moishele that caused trouble. You're the ones that killed my cat. You're the one that uh, made uh, slash my tires. Yeah, but that was 30 years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. It doesn't make a difference. They'll never let you get out. How do I know this? I know this from my own experience also. I remember I left the house when I was 17 years old. I went to college for a year, and then I came home. I stayed at my parents' house for a couple of months, and already after a couple of months, I knew that I had to leave. And the reason why, I, already, I was very, very independent already as a little kid. I was already working as a teenager. So after a couple of months of being at my parents' house, I got some money together, and I got my own apartment, and I was working, and so on and so forth. So already... Living on my own very young. And uh, as soon as I had the chance, I left the city. I left where we lived. I grew up in Staten Island. After we moved from Israel, I moved to Staten Island. But after, as soon as I got some money, a couple years later, I moved out of Staten Island and moved to Manhattan. Now, I moved to Manhattan mainly because it was closer to work and less wasting time traveling. But the biggest reason that I actually didn't even realize was going to pay off is that it actually helped me succeed. And the reason why is because when you're home, you're surrounded by your past. And your past will always be your past. Your past doesn't become your future. Your past is your past. And your past wants you to stay in the past. So all of the losers that hang out in the corner in high school, 20 years later, they're still hanging out in the corner. They still are hanging on the court. They're still losers. There were losers in high school. They're still losers today. And if you want to advance in your life, get a job, make a few dollars, and you have to like work a little harder, they look at you like, why? So I remember going to work. I leave the house at 5 o'clock in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, some god-awful hour. And I would go to work, take me an hour on the bus to get to Manhattan, finally get to Manhattan, work till... One o'clock in the morning almost. Get on the bus again. An hour. Get home. One thirty in the morning. Two o'clock in the morning. Some awful hour. I got home. It's the middle of the night. And it's always the same guys hanging out in front of the house, drinking a few beers, smoking a million cigarettes, smoking pot, doing whatever they're doing in the neighborhood. And I'm in my little briefcase in my suit, trying to make, you know, trying a dollar in a dream. And I see me like, where are you coming from? They work. It's like, now? What do you do? I tell them, uh, same thing. Whatever. It's like, why? Why do you work so hard? Why don't you come home at five like the rest of the world? Or six or seven or eight or ten. And I would always say the same thing. I'm trying to make something happen. And they never seemed to understand it. And every single time it would be the same thing. And it would eventually I would just continue to just walk. I just wouldn't even talk. Let's walk. Yeah, yeah, guys. I, I can't talk. I'm tired. I gotta go. I've been working. They've been hanging out for ten hours already. I've been chasing my dream for ten hours. 
but they didn't want me to. Why it bothered them that I'm doing something productive? They're staying exactly where they've been for the last 25 years. I'm trying to get somewhere. So what ended up happening is I moved away. Baruch Hashem eventually started succeeding, making a lot of money. And I just literally disappeared from the scene. Years, years, no one saw me. No one from the old neighborhood. I never came back. I never visited. I never called. I moved on. They moved on. I moved on. And one day, I uh, see this girl that went to my high school in the street. I had an office already at this point. I was already making a ton of money. I had an apartment in downtown Manhattan. And I was literally walking to the office. It was like a 10-minute walk to the office. And I had an office, a bunch of employees. Well, Hashem was very successful. Still very young, but very successful. So I see this girl that used to go to my high school, I don't know, years before. She was on the way somewhere. And I see, hey, how are you? How are you doing? You know, what are you doing? How are you doing? What do you do? And she, I don't know, she works as uh, some assistant or something for insurance company. I don't know, whatever. She has a regular job for someone that's in their 20s. And I, she says, what do you do? I say, I own a brokerage firm. So she looks at me and she goes, you own a brokerage firm? She sounded exactly like that. You own a brokerage firm? Like it bothered, like I just took it out of our account. I took all the money from our account, she felt. And I said, yes, I own a brokerage firm. She goes, you mean it's like your, your, your father's? I said, no, my father's in the dining business. He has nothing to do with the business. It's my business. She goes, what do you mean you own a brokerage firm? Like, it bought, like what do you mean? That's, that's my point. My point is it didn't make sense. Why? She's the past. She's the past. It didn't make sense to her that I would succeed, apparently. Apparently, I, I don't know. I guess I was supposed to be a loser in life. I don't know. The point is, is that your past is your past. You have to get out. You have to get out. And every single time I would see somebody from my past in the beginning for years, until it was already known and everything else, every time, oh, what do you do? I own a firm. I own a this. I own a that. I own... What do you mean you own it? Like It would always be like a follow-up question. What do you mean? Like it was like, like I just said, I discovered Mars. Mars is really Reuven. Like... What do you mean? It's, it's, I own a firm. What's the big deal? It was unco- incomprehensible for people. Why? Because they were all the past. It didn't make sense that I'm 26 and I got millions in the bank and they're 26 and they just barely paid their rent. Didn't make sense to them. Didn't make sense. Why? That's the past. It's no different than the Torah world. It's no different than any part of your life. You have to move away. You have to move away because your past will keep you down. That's the other reason. Also, you move to new places. If you've made mistakes in the previous place, new place is not going to know it. If you made some trouble in your previous yeshiva, go to a new yeshiva. Why? New yeshiva doesn't know that you made trouble in the last yeshiva. Start new. Old neighborhood, you uh, terrorize the neighbors. Excuse me, terrorize the neighbors. New neighborhood, you didn't terrorize. You're not, you know, no one knows that you terrorize the neighbors. So be a tzaddik now, do tshuva. If you terrorize the neighbors in every neighborhood, eventually everyone's going to know. But 
A new place is going to also let you do tshuva without uh, people getting in your way. And getting out of your comfort zone. Getting out of your comfort zone is extremely important. This is also part of the reason of why Hashem told Avraham Avinu to leave. Leave his father's home. Why? Get out of your comfort zone. Get out of your comfort zone. Yes, you got to a certain amount of success where you are, but you're not going to be able to become Avraham Avinu where you are. Why did Hashem wait till he's 75? That's when he was ready. That's when he was ready. So for example, right now you're ready to accomplish, let's say from 1 to 10, you're able to accomplish 6. But if a little more learning in yeshiva, you're going to get a little better, you're going to get a little smarter, a little more wisdom, a little more experience, 2, 3, 4, 5 years from now, you're going to be able to achieve 10 out of 10. So if I have something to give you, I'd rather give it to you when you're ready than versus giving it to you now. Why? Because giving it to you now, you're bound to fail. So Hashem is not going to give you a test that you can't pass. Hashem always had a plan for Avram Avinu to become Avram Avinu. But there's a time and a place for everything. But the key is that Avram Avinu was known to Hashem as someone that was looking to do His will. Now, this is the next part. Many people assume that the Torah or Hashem's will is supposed to come to their, to their home, to their comfort zone. Meaning, if Hashem really wanted me to do it, then He would just tell me. Like, you're Moshe Rabbeinu, He's going to talk to you in a, out of a burning bush. If it's not comfortable, if it's not convenient, I'm not doing it. So the reality of it is that if you're going to assume that, there's no chance for you to succeed in life. Not in Torah, not in uh, mitzvot, not in business, not in anything. Why? Hashem created you as a person that's supposed to be ambitious, supposed to want more. It's within your nature to want more than what you have. Even your desire for money. You have a hundred, you want two hundred. Wanting more money is not a good trait, but it's part of the inclination that Hashem put within you to be ambitious. And the reason why is because you're supposed to be ambitious with mitzvot. You did one mitzvah, you now want to do another mitzvah. You read one book, now you want to read another book. You had one kid, now you want to have another kid. Every time you did something for the will of Hashem, now you want to do more. It leads you to want to do more. Unfortunately, many times we use this trait that Hashem instilled in us for bad things. One sin leads to another sin. I made one sin, might as well make another one. I already wasted seed, might as well do it again today. I already am going out with a goya, might as well be Mechal Shabbat. I didn't read today, might as well not read tomorrow, this week, or next year. One One sin leads to another. So... The nature of wanting more is within you. Meaning that when you're lazy, you're working against your own nature. It's like a machine trying to ruin itself. It's like a, it's like a computer giving itself a virus. 
That's what laziness is. Laziness is you're killing yourself. Because you're working against your own nature. Little by little, you get to a point where you feel like you can't move. You're perfectly fine, but you feel like everything is too much. Because you've gotten to a point where all the things that were easy, you don't want to do anymore. If it's not big enough, you don't want to do it. If it's not good enough, you don't want to do it. Eventually, you don't want to do anything. So eventually, the easy things, you don't want to do them either. So he says, do not assume that it will come to you. Don't assume that Torah is going to come to you. Torah is supposed something that you're supposed to chase. Now, someone that understands the, both the value of Torah and the value of chasing it, Rav Vadya, his spade was was as a um, yard site was just a, a few days ago, and uh, Rav Gil Karov said an amazing story about Rav Vadya that gives you guys an idea of. A Ravavadya that you probably don't know. Most people that know Ravavadya or the stories about Ravavadya know the famous Ravavadya. Know the Gdolador Ravavadya. Know the Tamit Chacham, Avbedin, head rabbi of, uh, you know, all of uh, Israel, head rabbi of the Sephardic world, Gdolador, all these things. He had a helicopter taken from place to place, giant of giants. The Baba Sali, Allah Shalom, which was also an Avbedin, by the way. He wasn't just someone that made miracles. His, an Avbedin was a giant Talmud Chacham. The Abu Chatzira family, in general, were all huge Talmudic Chachamim. And just so you know, Abu Chatzira is not a real name. It's not a real name. The Abu Chatzira name was from the original, the original of the family. And the reason why it was called uh, uh, Abu Chatzira, Abu Chatzira means the master of the rug. Or Chatzira was like a rug or a carpet. Why? He was very poor and he wanted to go to a different city. He wanted to go to a different city. So he went to the boat. Like everyone else, he would go by boat. There was no planes or anything like that. So he went to the boat and the guy said, you have to get off the boat. You don't have any money. I need to go, I need to go do chesed, I need to do this, I need to do that. No money, no no service. So he took out all he had to his possession was his rug. He went outside the where the uh, boat was, went outside, put the rug on the water, on, I'm sorry, right next to the water, sat on the carpet, and started learning Torah. Started learning Torah, and now you have Hundreds and hundreds of witnesses watched him follow the boat the whole way on water, on his carpet. On his carpet from city to city. So they, from that point on, the whole family was known as the Abu Chatzira family. Now every one of their babot, every one of their babot was a big miracle worker, but also was a giant Talmud Chacham. Now one time, um, the Baba Sali, which died uh, less than 30 years ago, I think 30 years ago, something like that, maybe less, he um, had an outfit that he would wear only for Shabbat. Only for Shabbat. A white outfit, only wear for Shabbat. He was more modest than any woman in the world today. He would cover his hair, he'd cover his face. See pictures of the Baba Sali? He was more modest than any woman in the world. 
cover every part of his body. So, he was a giant Talmud Chacham, and uh, one time he tells one of his, uh, his, his helper to bring him his outfit. He says, but Kodarav, it's not Shabbat. Bring the outfit. The person that's going about to visit me now, the Talmud Chacham that's about to visit me now, is on the same level as Shabbat. Who is visiting him? Rovadia. Ravadya, before he became Ravavadya. Before he became famous. And after he left, he came to visit him and he uh, told him, come on, let's uh, do a sauda together. We'll bring the Mashiach. We'll bring the Mashiach closer together. Ravavadya says, I'm sorry, I have to go. I have a shield Torah. I have to go give a shield Torah. Because yeah, but we're going to bring the Mashiach closer now together. Because you know, as well as I know, you cannot allow to cancel a shield Torah. Even for Seudah, it's going to bring the Mashiach. He says, you're right. And he left. After he left, the Baba Sali tells his helper, he goes, you know, him, he was a, I mean, there's many, many miracles that are famous miracles that the Baba Sali made that are reported. It's not like a, uh, oh, one guy saw it and he's saying it like the Christianity nonsense. I'm talking about thousands and thousands of people witness with their own eyes. Even in uh, just uh, 15 years ago, his son made a huge miracle. Some uh, kid was kidnapped. A girl was kidnapped. The family went to him. And uh, he drew to them exactly where she was. Different country. Different continent. He drew them exactly the map of where she was, the map of the house. He's never been there. He's never been there. He draws exactly what to them. Shows it to the cops. The cops go there. They say, Who, how, how do you have this? Because we go to our house. This stuff existed. Unfortunately, I don't think it exists anymore. I think they were the last of it. And if it does exist, it's... I don't know about. And I don't know anybody else knows about it. But anyway... The uh, Baba Sali said about Rabbi Vadya, he says, you know, that soul, that Rav that just left, Tamit Chacham just left the house, he doesn't belong in this generation. He was born in the wrong generation. And what do you mean, Kvoda Rav? He says, he was only born in this generation to save us. He doesn't belong in this generation. Has nothing to do with this generation. His mesirut nefesh, his love for Am Yisrael, for Torah, with the, what he does, it's not from this generation. It's only because we mamash need him. Why we need him? What did he do so much? Well, because he studied a lot. A lot of people have studied. It's a lot of people have studied. Why? Because he had a good memory. It's a lot of people have a good memory. Plenty of, of people have good memory. Plenty. Can't compare memories. Why? Because people liked him. Many likable people. There's even less shine that people like. What does that mean to the good? What made Rav Avadya Gdolado? So, Rav Gil Karov said a story that most people don't know. He says, before Rav Avadya became Rav Avadya, still he's young, in his 30s. In Jerusalem in those days, not many people had cars. 
So one of the people would have a car. I actually believe it was uh, Rav Gil Karov was the one. This is a story from over 60 years ago. And he said to them, okay, let's go. Take me. Where are we going, Kvodara? Where are we going? Because we're going to go out of Jerusalem. Where are we going? We're going to go anywhere that there's Jews. Any Beknesset outside of Jerusalem, we're going to go there. Because they invite you? No. They told you to come? No. You know where to go? No. Anywhere we see it, there's a Yeshuv, there's a Beknesset, there's people, there's Jews there, we're going to go there. Every day. You go there, after, you go there for Mincha, after Mincha, you go to the podium. Nobody invited him. Nobody knows who he is. He's not Rabbi Vadi that you know. Nobody knows him. He goes to the podium. Rabotai, I'd like to say something. You know, Israelis, they're not polite like you guys. Like, who are you? What do you want from us? Who brought this guy? Who is a practical joke? Get out of here. Leave us alone. Rabotai, I need to say a few words. In between, Minchai and there's maybe 15 minutes. Okay, a few people made fun of it. A few people left. A few people taunted. A few people stayed. He starts talking for 15 minutes about what? How you have to sign your kids up to yeshivot. Did he have a yeshiva? No. Did he own a yeshiva? No. Did he have an interest in a yeshiva? No. You all have to sign your kids up to yeshivot. You must sign your kids up to yeshivot. A few people said, okay, fine, fine. One, two people said, okay. A bunch of people said, no. He starts saying, after he finished, you think he'd go home now, right? No, no, no. Okay, let's say, the one that said, yes, let's go. Come on, we'll fill up the application together. I brought the application for you. I brought the application. Let's fill it up together right now. Fill out the application. A few people said, no. Because, no, no, give me your phone number. No, no, I said, no, I'm not sending my kids to yeshiva. Give me your phone number anyway. Maybe in six months from now, you change your mind. He cold called them. He called them a few months later. He tried to get them to do it. The heads of the... In the beginning, there was no Sephardic yeshivot. The heads of the... One of the heads of the Ashkenazi yeshivot said, Rabbi Vadya built the yeshiva system in, in, in Eretz Yisrael. We're not talking about just the Sephardic side. We're talking about the Ashkenazi side. Said most of the kids came from him. That's Rabbi Vadya. Imagine going to a place you're not invited, they don't want you there, they're making fun of you, and you're there, what? Go do kiruv. That's a, that's a person that knows the value of Torah. The, the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, page 147b, says that this entire uh, Mishnah is about a famous story with Rabbi Lazar ben Arach. Rabbi Lazar ben Arach was one of the was the biggest student of, of Rabbi Yochanan, Aban Yochanan. And um, when they compare all the students, if you remember in the previous Mishnayot, they said Rabbi Lazar keneged kulam. He's bigger than everyone combined. So one day, Rabbi Lazar moved away to a very beautiful place. Very beautiful city. And uh, his wife said, listen, you're a big Talmit Chacham. You're Chashuv. You're important and everything else. Your students are going to follow you. They're all going to move. They're all going to come too. Well, they're all going to stay where they are. Ah, they're going to come to you. 
And Rabbi Lazak, with all of his Torah, made the mistake of listening to his wife. And, and took the advice of, be comfortable. Be comfortable. Stop chasing Torah. What was the punishment? He forgot all of his Torah. Hashem removed all of the Torah that he had in his head. To such an extent that he didn't, couldn't even do a uh, basics. His students came to visit him one time and they saw that his mamash knows nothing in comparison to what he knew. And they all started praying for him. They all started crying and praying to him for Hashem. And Hashem made a miracle and gave him back the Torah. So that's why the Mishnah says, exile yourself to a place of Torah. Meaning, don't go to some place that's really, really nice if there's no Torah there already. Don't assume that it will come after you. Don't assume that your students are going to come after you. And your colleagues, for it's your colleagues who will cause it to remain with you. The only reason why I still have Torah now, Rabbi Lazar says, is because my friends, my colleagues, not my students, my colleagues, they prayed for me. They prayed for me. So, to finish off, there's three main points that we need to understand from this. We talk about the value of a Rav a lot. And I still don't think anyone understands what the value of a Rav is. I still don't think that anyone really understands the value of a real Chavuta is. I really don't think so. Because most people think that if they have some books, they learn from some books, they have the Rambam, they have Gemara, they have Shuchan Aruch, they have Mesilat uh, Yesharim. That's it, that replaces everything. That becomes your rabbi. What do I need to go to Shiur Torah for? What do I need to go to Shiur Torah? I have Gemara, I have Pirkei Avot. I'm reading what he's reading, right? Wrong. Wrong. Having a Rav, first and foremost, gives you direction. When you go and you study from the books, you are assuming that everything you're reading, you're understanding. Who says you're understanding it right? Okay, we both read the same material. Who says you're right? We both read the same material. We both had different different conclusions. You says kasher, I say tameh. Who says you're right? This is the difference between life and death. One of the uh, Tadikian previous generations, I believe the story is being told by Rav Desler. No, no, I'm sorry, Rav Miponovich. Rav Miponovich, one time they uh, asked the son right next to him a certain question. Right away, right away the son answered on the spot. They asked the question, right away he asked the question. Rav Miponovich, tach, slapped him in his face. That's Torah? He was right though. The answer was right. He wasn't wrong. He slapped him in his face. Why he slapped him in his face? He says, that's Torah. What do you, you think? You just take it out of your sleeve? You didn't think about it? Maybe you're wrong. But you're using your memory for Torah? Maybe you're wrong. Work on it. Amal. Amal means work. Labor for your Torah. Someone asked you a question... It's not just you remember this by heart like it's high school. It's not if you remember if it's an amoeba or it's a bacteria in this diagram. 
It's not if you remember if it's, the, if it's a dinosaur that's called Tyrannosaurus Rex or some other nonsense. It's life or death. Amal Torah means you have to work for your Torah. Someone asks you a halachic question, you can't just throw it out. Oh, yeah, it's this. Yes, it's yes. Sure it's yes. Are you sure it's yes? How do you know it's yes? Who says it's yes? Because you say it's yes. Because your memory says it's yes. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's no. So when you have a Rav, that Rav directs you. The Rav directs you to see if what you're understanding is really what's supposed to be understood. The second thing is, is that two people, three people, ten people, a thousand people could all look at the same thing and see different things. Even more so in Torah. You can read the same Daf Gemara yourself a thousand times. Every single time you'll get something else. Every single time. Never fails. Even more so from someone else's vision. One of the things that amazed me about the Torah is that people that have been religious and learning Torah their whole life like to listen to my shiurim. I, I didn't understand it in the beginning. I honestly didn't understand it. I said, what do you mean? You've got the yeshiva. You're a rabbi. You are a tamit chacham. You even wrote a couple of books in some cases. Why do you waste your time? I, I thought in my eyes, it was, why do you waste your time listening to my CD or listening to my lectures? Why? Go learn Gemara. Go whatever. I mean, what do I know that you don't know? He goes, everything you're saying in Yeshua, I never learned. What do you mean? You don't know. Everything you're saying in Yeshua, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? This is uh, basics. It's not basics. It's your vision. Yes, you're reading what Chazal says, but then you're putting your own taste into it, your own perspective of it. It's da Torah, 100%. But it's the way that you're delivering it. It's your perspective of it. I see it differently. Not that it's a different conclusion. It's a different way to see it. Both of us see the sky. You call it blue, I call it turquoise. In essence, it's still the sky. Everyone is entitled to their own chidushin. Everyone's entitled to their own perspective. You have a rav, you have a chavruta, you're going to see their perspective of things that you're just not going to get to in many cases. So when you are arrogant to the point where you're not, no one is good enough to learn with you, no one is good enough to guide you, you're also shortchanging yourself with Torah. You're also misunderstanding the value of Torah. You're thinking that you are the holder of all Torah. The Gemara in Masechet Yoma says someone like you, Hashem hates. Why? You could live with the wrong conclusion your whole life and not know it. You could become a Naval Birshut Torah, despicable, but thinking that you have the permission of a Torah to be so. So to say, just give me books, that's enough, Lotov. Proverbs 3.5 says, don't rely on your own understanding. Don't think that you can succeed on your own without the help of a mentor, of a Rav. You can't use your intellect alone. You have to have siyat bishmai, you have to have some type of guidance. And the way to truly get to success is by questioning your teacher.
Rabbi Israel Misalant said something extraordinary, and we'll finish from here. He says, Chasidut, you know, in his days, it wasn't like today, everyone wants to be a Chasid. People think that Chasidut is Judaism. It's not. It's a part, something you could add to it if you'd like, but being a Chasid doesn't make you righteous. If you think that Chasidut is only because of your clothing. Unfortunately, in today's world, Judaism, to people that are not really deep within Torah, is viewed as something that's solely dependent on your exterior, meaning the way you look. So if you are religious, that means you wear black and white. Even though this is, in essence, really more of a modern tradition. Our sages, none of them wore black and white. As a matter of fact, you aren't allowed to wear black. It would it symbolize death. It didn't symbolize good. As a matter of fact, in the Gemara in Moed Katan, and also in a few other places, there's at least one or two other places in the Gemara, if I remember correctly, it says, if you're going to sin, you have a big Yetzara. You have a big Yetzara, you want to, I don't know, go be with some prostitute or something. You want to do a big Yetzara. Put on black clothes and leave the city. Put on black clothes and leave the city. So Tosfot says, why put on black clothes? Why put on black clothes? Why put purple clothes? Green clothes? Yellow clothes? Why? Answer, very difficult to find black clothes in those days. So by the time you had found the black clothes, you probably killed your Yetzirah. You don't want to do it anymore. Ah, it's not worth it anymore. It's not worth it anymore. It's not worth to go do this Yetzirah. Let me go and get married. Let me go and go learn Torah. Go learn Torah. It's not, it's no, no black clothes. It's no black clothes. So, first of all, people thinking that you need to be black and white in order to be a religious Jew, it's completely wrong. On the women's side, women think that in order for them to be modest, they have to look like they're going to a funeral all the time. This is also not the case. Now, even though darker colors make it easier to be modest, obviously you don't want anyone to turn into a traffic sign. You should not wear certain colors or certain clothing that make you a traffic sign where every single soul or what's living or not living is stopping because of you. You don't have to wear black all the time. Where do we learn it from? Eshet the song that King Solomon wrote about his own mother. You read it every Friday. Kidu Shabbat. Eshet And it says, the, uh, the uh, uh, woman of valor, what does she wear? Pauper clothing. A woman of valor is wearing purple clothing. So even if you're a righteous tzaddikah, like Bacheva, you're allowed to wear purple if you want. No problem. As long as it's modest. As long as it's modest. There are certain things that can be modest in different colors. You don't have to look like you're going to a funeral all the time. If you like to wear black, wear black. Fine. But don't think that the only way for you to be modest is black, so therefore you don't want to be modest anymore. And that's what happens. Many people, I tell them, listen, you should, you know, you have to be more modest, you have to cover yourself. No, I don't want to look like I'm going to a funeral. Who said you have to look like you're going to a funeral? 
All modesty is, is you have to cover your body and leave everything to the imagination. Everything. As much as you could possibly leave to the imagination, leave it to the imagination. The exception of your face, in so many words. You have to cover your whole body with the exception of your face, your hands, and your feet. That's it. Everything else needs to be covered. That's it. It's very simple. It's not rocket science. You have to wear a dress that's loose-fitting. And the reason why is because, again, leaving everything to the imagination. You don't want a strange man, that's a sick mind, to imagine what you look like when you're in front of your husband in a private place. There's no reason for him to know what you look like. So if you wear something very tight, you're not even letting him imagine. You're doing a job for him. What kind of diamond are you? You're a precious diamond for Hashem, but you're not treating yourself as such. So loose clothing, that's the reason. Covering your neckline. When women don't cover their neckline, unlike a man, unlike a man where he, in general, men are unattractive creatures. Men are gross. Really. They are. They're close. It's not, it's not, it's not an insult. I'm one of them. But men are not attractive. There's no woman in the world that has sense that looks at a guy and says, Wow. I wonder what he looks like naked. Women don't think like that. They just don't. It's not, number one, guys don't look that, that like that to drive a woman to think that way. And two, women don't think like animals like men do. They just don't. They think, oh, he looks like he's a nice guy. Oh, he sounds funny. Oh, he looks like he's very smart. They think about personalities. Men, on the other hand, are more animalistic. They're like, you know, Raptors or something in the, from, from the Jurassic Park. So women need to understand what you're dealing with. This means that everything that you show men, we use the Yetzirah that's in us to imagine something. So the neckline that you, precious diamond woman, think is not such a big deal. a big deal. Why? Because the bone that you have here makes us think of something else. The where Depends how much you're showing. Eventually, there's certain women that want to show you pretty much everything. People think it's like a mitzvah to show like parts of their body. So you have to cover it. Why? It belongs to your husband. When you sign a ketubah, you say it belongs to my husband. Not to Steve and Carlos from the supermarket. Not to them. Not to your brother-in-law. Not to your cousin. Not to your son's friends that are coming over to play basketball. Belongs to your husband. So you cover like a... You don't have to cover like a turtleneck all the time. Just cover your... It's very simple. No v-necks in so many words. Arms. Cover your elbows. Cover your arms at all times. You're not... This uh, Obama uh, woman, what's her name? Michelle Obama that made uh, pretty much sleeveless a new, uh, somehow it became a style not to wear sleeves anymore, despite the fact that most women should never, ever do such a thing. And I'm not even talking about for modesty reasons, it just doesn't look good. But for some reason, it became uh, stylistic to not wear sleeves. You see pretty much every, every single person that's a reporter or, or that's reporting the news that I saw for six minutes today, 
There's no sleeves. It's like summer everywhere. Everyone's on the beach, practically. It's crazy. But anyway, you have to cover your elbows. You have to cover your elbows. You're allowed to show your wrists. You have to cover your elbows. Last but not least, aside from obviously covering your hair with a hat or a um, scarf, you have to wear a skirt that covers your knees at least six inches past your knees after you sit down. After you sit down. After you sit down. Repeat after me. After you sit down. Six inches past your knee after you sit down. Why? Because if it's covering your knee before you sit down, but not enough, as soon as you sit down, you might as well not wear anything. You might as well wear pants. This is one of the things that women fail to realize. It's a big deal. Those six inches are the difference between Ganeden and Gehenom. It's that. It's to that extent. If you wear a skirt that covers your knee six inches past your knee after you sit down, in essence, you're covering most of your leg at all times. In reality, ideally, you should be wearing a skirt or a dress that covers all the way to the ankles. If you don't want to, you don't have to. Allah allows you to wear something a little shorter. You could show a third of your leg. But that means that two-thirds have to be covered. That's six inches past your leg after you sit down. Because many women, unfortunately, are victims to the wicked fashion world, where apparently it's almost impossible to find a long enough skirt. So this is not only their fault. They don't make skirts that qualify what I just told you. So many women wear skirts thinking they're, they're doing a mitzvah, they're doing tshuva, they're wearing a skirt. It's obviously not pants, which is not allowed for women. Aside from the fact that it's not modest, it's also men's attire. Until the last hundred years, no, one, no woman in the world wore pants. This is only something that happened in recent generations. So the Torah forbids men from wearing women's clothes and women from wearing men's clothes. But aside from that, women are wearing dresses thinking that they're uh, doing something good. Unfortunately, it's not. And the reason why is because as soon as they sit down, pretty much you could see their legs. They have to close their legs the whole time. But in reality, you can't even look in that direction. This is a very, very big problem for them. It's not only a big problem for the person that's looking, it's a big problem for them because they become part of it. So it's harder to find. It's more difficult. It's annoying. But remember, it's for God. It's for God. It's not for me. It's for God. You can care less about me. You can hate me for all I care. It doesn't make a difference to me. Just listen to what I'm saying. So, when you use your common sense, none of this stuff is going to make sense. Your common sense is going to go against this. Your common sense is going to go, what difference does it make what skirt I'm wearing? Does God really care about my skirt? Your common sense is going to tell you God doesn't care about your skirt. The next thing is God is going to tell you in your common sense. God doesn't care if you eat kosher or not. What does he care? He made all animals. Why does he care if I eat kosher or not kosher? Does he really care who the butcher is? My butcher is really nice anyway. So what? My butcher was a gun. What does he care? It's cheaper. Doesn't, if God wanted me to eat kosher food, he'd give me more money. He didn't give me more money. It's all eat cheaper food. That's not kosher. Your common sense that Shlomo Melech is telling you don't use, your understanding will always go against Datoa. So when you don't have a rabbi to direct you, you don't have a chavuta, someone you're studying with on a regular basis, 
to keep you in check, you're only bound to become a kofel. And that's why some of the big dolado have said that if you're not going to have a chavuta, that's like your rav, better off you don't do tshuva. Why? You're bound to become a problem. So Rabbi Yisrael Salant said something extraordinary about chasidut. He said, the chasidim have a problem. But also their opponents also have a problem. The chasidim think that all they need is their rabbi. Whoever their rabbi is. Their chasidut in general, and chasidut, having a rabbi is, has always been important. That's like one of the main things of chasidut is to have a rabbi, have the admol. But he says the chasidim think that all they need is just their rabbi, but not their books. Not Gemara. Not a uh, Rambam. Not uh, the uh, Tanakh. Just their rabbi. As long as they have their rabbi, everything's going to be okay. Yeah, be Michal Shabbat. Now everything's going to be okay. My rabbi said everybody has Olam Abba. He says, but their opponents also have a problem. They think that all they need is the books and no rabbi. What we're learning here from Rabino Rai is that in order for us to receive this extraordinary Torah that's going to save us from the Sodom and Gomorrah world we live in right now, that's being destroyed as we speak, that's being exposed as we speak, we have to get ready to become uncomfortable. Start chasing mitzvot, start chasing Torah, start chasing shiurim, start chasing the truth. It's the only thing that's going to save you. It's the only thing. If you're still 50-50, you're putting yourself in danger. What's the danger? Becoming one of them. Becoming one of them. They don't know that they are them. They think they're okay. This guy that did a video saying that he's going to do an act for God and raise $10 million to make a movie with it, he actually thinks this is a good deed. He doesn't know he's him. He doesn't know he's Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't know he's part of the system. He doesn't know. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't think there's anything wrong with what he's doing. So when you're still 50-50, it's very, very easy to become one of them. So it's time to make a choice. Hashem's closing the store. It's time for us to seriously take the Torah, start chasing it, start getting uncomfortable, start going to shiurim, Start really doing things like you're supposed to. And the way to do it is pick a way, pick a rabbi, pick a chavuta, and stick to it. If you don't have a rabbi locally, find one. If there's no one locally, move. Move. If there's no rabbi that you can learn with regularly, on a weekly basis, you need to move. If you have no chavuta, you need to move. It costs money, so what? What else are you going to do with it? Build a retirement account? What do you think God gave you money for? To do mitzvot. It's time to do mitzvot. Now, before Mashiach shows up.